Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on the economic reopening and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Jared Gross, head of institutional portfolio strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. So, uh, David, let's start with the bullish reopening story, which seems to rest on two foundations, vaccinations and stimulus. The news on the vaccination front is quite positive. Nearly a majority of adults have had their first shot and a significant number have had two. We are hearing anecdotally about the pace slowing down, but nonetheless, Number of large cities are moving to end restrictions on indoor activity as COVID cases decline significantly. So that's the first piece and a very positive one. We also are seeing the effects of the Biden administration's COVID relief bill. And there are aggressive plans for further stimulus via infrastructure spending, though, of course, that still has to make its way through the congressional meat grinder. One could almost forget that we are also still getting massive monetary stimulus from the Federal Reserve at the same time. So that's the second piece. Maybe we'll just start with your outlook for the economy for the remainder of 2021 and into 2022. Is there a lot left in the tank at this point, or do you think growth is going to fade later in the year? In terms of the story here in 2021, I think you're going to see economic activity continue to accelerate over the course of the next couple of months and arguably into the end of this year and the beginning of next year as well. We do recognize that there are limits to how long the economy can really grow at an above-trend pace, given constraints related to productivity and demographics. But the combination, Jared, as you've noted, of an economy that's opening back up, people that are getting vaccinated, and a significant tailwind from both monetary and fiscal policy, it's really tough to fight the reopening story. And we do think that this could be the best year for economic growth in the United States since the early 1950s. Now, what I'll say about the rest of the world, you know, Europe is lagging the U.S. in terms of vaccination and emerging markets are obviously in somewhat of a tough spot, particularly places like India and Brazil. We do think that the European story is delayed rather than derailed, and we will see that economy begin to fire on all cylinders into the end of this year. The EM story may lag a bit beyond that, but Generally, spillovers from the United States to the rest of the world are far more impactful than spillovers from the rest of the world to the U.S. And so I do think that there's an element to all of this whereby a very robust U.S. economy brings everybody along for the ride. And we do think that by the time we get into the first quarter of 2022, we'll be in an environment of fairly synchronized global growth. But the road ahead of us is not without bumps and twists and turns. I think last week's jobs report served as a reminder here that things aren't necessarily going to proceed in an uninterrupted fashion and serves really as kind of a checkpoint for investors in the sense of they need to recognize that GDP is bouncing back very quickly. Employment is going to lag that to an extent and more broadly that the capital markets are very different from what we're seeing in the real economy. And we got a string of very positive economic reports over the past couple of weeks We've gotten some very good corporate profit data for the first quarter. Markets aren't really reacting to that. And a lot of clients have been asking us why. I mean, the reality of the situation is that there's already a lot of very good news in the price. I would go as far as to say that 
what we've seen over the past 12 months in terms of the pricing of risk assets, the repricing of risk assets as we've worked our way through the pandemic is really pricing in what we're seeing today. And I do worry a little bit about what markets might sniff out here as they look at 2022 and look at 2023. But in general, we are of the view that the economic recovery is still very much on track. Okay. So the economic backdrop is looking very constructive. I think you're spot on there. If there is a potential fly in the ointment, it may be the widespread signs of emerging inflation. So spend a minute breaking down what we're seeing. And I think it's important to try and separate anecdotal evidence from potentially more worrisome long-term underlying trends. So give us a flavor of what you think about inflation right now. Exactly. It's really a question of cyclical versus structural. And you know, the way that I think about cyclical inflation is it's kind of like economic sweat. If you go to the gym and you run on the treadmill for 20 minutes, chances are you're going to perspire. If you're an economy like the U.S. that's capable of growing at 2% in the long run and you grow by more than 7% in a given year, you would expect a little bit of inflation to materialize. And so, you know, the inflation that we're starting to see here in the United States and really across the developed world, and we do think inflation will pick up over the remainder of 2021, you know, a lot of this is a function of mismatches between supply and demand. Obviously, we see what's going on with goods pricing and bottlenecks. There's some really interesting work that's been done, which basically says, look, if you used to spend $100 a month and you split that $50 on services and $50 on goods, because you haven't been able to consume services at the same pace during the pandemic, you've consumed goods, you spent $100 on goods. And so a lot of this does feel like it's transitory. And there are really four big things that we think have weighed on inflation from a more structural perspective over time, and very well could weigh on inflation here going forward. And those are things like demographics, income inequality, globalization, technological adoption, the way that we've embraced technology in order to continue working over the past 12 months arguably could lead to a boost in productivity going forward and help some of those more cyclical trends in inflation run their course. But again, you know, absent the implementation of more progressive policies by the government, a real retrenching on the globalization front, we don't really see how this inflation that we expect over the course of the next 12 months proves to be anything more than transitory. But there was something that caught my attention in the jobs report last week that I think is worth teasing out. Wage growth was very robust, and it does look like employers are being forced to kind of entice workers to come back into the labor force by paying higher wages. Actually, if you look at on a year over year basis while controlling for sector mix, wage growth was something to the tune of 8% in the month of April. That's obviously a number that we haven't seen in quite some time. And I do think that another risk we need to monitor as it pertains to the more structural outlook for inflation is really what happens with wages here going forward, and particularly what happens with policies around a minimum wage to the tune of $15 in the United States. So our base case view here is that inflation is going to be transitory. We would agree with the Federal Reserve, but we also recognize what has held inflation back over time. And we're watching all of those things very closely because if we begin to see a shift in that broader dynamic, that may suggest that inflation is a bit more persistent than what a lot of people have currently penciled in. And so that's the view from our vantage point. Growth should be pretty good. We're going to see some inflation, but it's not necessarily going to be a return to what we saw back in the 1970s. Jared, maybe turning things over to you, 
we know that most forecasting, whether it's capital markets or economics, really grounds itself in views on growth and inflation. But obviously, the key variable that kind of links those two things together is an outlook for the central bank. And so the inflation question is one that I get all the time. The first derivative of that is what does it all mean for the Fed? And so how are you thinking about the Fed's current policy stance? How are you thinking about their reaction function as it pertains to inflation? And what do you think the impact will be on markets when the Fed eventually does start to signal that it's getting ready to move to the exit? Yeah, thanks, David. From a financial economics perspective, inflation is usually priced into financial assets. And so what we worry about as investors is surprises to the expectation, either to the upside or to the downside that could reprice assets. And we don't have a lot of history to go on with a Fed that is actively trying to encourage inflation. That is really a new feature. And I think starting with Yellen's recognition that the 2% target was somewhat flexible and now the more kind of fleshed out Powell doctrine that they're willing to let the inflation rate run well above 2% for a period of time in order to get the economy going. We're starting to get some clarity around how the Fed is thinking about this. In the near term, what investors care about most is the path of interest rates. Most investors don't own a lot of inflation-sensitive assets. They don't have directly inflation-sensitive liabilities. And so you really have to filter this through, what does this mean for my portfolio? And the first sign of impact is going to be on fixed income assets. And right now, you've got the Fed using its policy levers to put a thumb on the scale to keep rates low and sort of increase the value of fixed income assets, reduce yields across a wide spectrum of the fixed income markets. So on one level, you look at the inflation expectations, you look at the level of yields, and you say something is mispriced here. But of course, that's an intent. That's the Fed's policy. As we say, it's a feature. It's not a bug. What you then have to consider is, what does the unwind look like? Will the Fed be able to engender a calm and measured unwinding of current policy and avoid the sort of elephant in the room, which is the taper tantrum too. And will something of that nature occur a second time? As of now, the markets are pretty calm about where Fed policy stands. I think to your point, there is going to be a spike in inflation. Some of that is from base effects last year. Some of that is from a legitimate move upward in commodity prices and wages and so forth. And so as we kind of get more data on that, we're going to have to assess the Fed's stance relative to that data. And they are currently projecting a kind of spike in inflation that comes back down and they're willing to hold the line with rates where they are. And that's going to be tested. And you're starting to see a little bit of fissures developing even within the FOMC and within the broader Fed Board of Governors. And you had Fisher from Dallas makes some relatively hawkish comments, more recently balanced by Evans and Kashkari making more dovish comments. Obviously, the unified message coming out of Washington from Powell and Clarida is pretty clear that they expect to remain on hold. But the overall mix of policy has driven investors towards riskier assets, which is partly by design and is intended to be a stimulative movement within the economy. So that then again brings you back to what happens as this starts to unwind. The first phase of the unwind, which I think most people project into late this year or next year, is going to be some sort of a tapering of purchases along the yield curve, assuming that 
growth and employment continues to improve and they see some signs of stability in the economy, that's going to have a hopefully modest effect on those specific asset pools that they're buying into, potentially credit, mortgages, treasuries. And they're probably going to start further out on the curve and kind of walk it back in. What you'd be concerned about is if the expectation is that the Fed is behind the curve on inflation, if rates rise meaningfully, and that starts a broader repricing of risk assets, not just within fixed income, but within equities and potentially even into more sort of private alternative asset classes that rely on low-cost financing and leverage and so forth. So right now, I think it's steady as she goes. I think as an investor, you probably want to be a little bit underweight duration. Credit looks fairly stable at this point with a lot of liquidity in the system, but there are reasons to be concerned that the Fed is at least positioning itself to wind up a little bit behind the curve. And they may feel like that's almost by design, but the markets may ultimately say otherwise. I think that that's right. And I think you mentioned some of the division that's beginning to emerge out of the Fed. Let's not forget what everybody's favorite chief market strategist, Yellen, said last week about the need for rates to rise here going forward. I thought that that was an interesting statement that you then saw her kind of try to walk back. But nonetheless, Jared, you make a really good point, which is that the Fed is banking on the idea that inflation is not going to be a problem. And the Fed is also banking on the idea that if inflation becomes a problem, they have the tools that they need to get things back to where they'd like it to be. And I think that those are fair assumptions. They are significant assumptions, and that makes them significant risks to the outlook. And so what we really need to think about is what might a Fed mistake look like? In the time that I've been doing this job, the Fed has never really gotten it quote unquote right. You know, they've either been behind the ball, they've been a little bit ahead of things, they haven't been aligned with the market. And so I think the risk here is that you one see continued division in the messaging from the Fed. And that makes it increasingly difficult for investors to gauge really what the direction of travel is. And taking it one step further, forward guidance is the only thing that they have left. I mean, there are very few arrows that the Fed still has in its quiver. I don't think they want to move rates into negative territory. I don't think that they want to ramp up asset purchases further. And so it's really about sending that reassuring message that's going to be what dictates the efficacy of Fed policy here going forward. And so, you know, I think it's important that they really try to hold their ground as much as possible and present that unified view. Because there is going to be an angle of all of this where the pockets of inflation you're seeing, you know, those stories, those anecdotes really could begin to gain momentum. And you could hear other parts of the government begin to try to get involved in Fed policy. We obviously saw that under the prior administration. I don't think it would necessarily look exactly the same. But even just what Yellen said the other day, I mean, very, very strange for a Treasury secretary to be commenting on Fed policy in that way. And so, I think that the base case view here is that they start tapering at the beginning of next year. They hike rates at the beginning of 2023. Again, that's a little bit more dovish than the market, a little bit more hawkish than the Fed. But if they can telegraph that timeline, I think that markets will be able to take it in stride. The risk is that investors get nervous about inflation. And the risk is that investors begin to question what the Fed can and cannot do going forward. And so to me, I think we got a little bit of a preview of what a taper tantrum might look like earlier on this year when you saw long-term rates move sharply higher in February and March. The risk during the back half of this year is that the story around reopening is so positive and you continue to see prices rise 
on the back of this mismatch between supply and demand, and the Fed becomes a little bit uncomfortable in that dynamic, and you see markets begin to price in what they expect is going to happen rather than what the Fed is telling them is going to happen. So really watching that alignment or lack of alignment between what investors believe and what the Fed is suggesting it's actually going to do. And so if we saw something like that, I think that it calls into question how to think about asset allocation in an environment where that is very clearly a risk. We haven't even really touched on the subject of asset prices. The Fed has acknowledged that risk assets look expensive. And I think to your point earlier, Jared, you know, some of that is by design, but that obviously means when assets are expensive, there's less room for a mistake. And so last year was a year in the sense that the economy was in a really, really bad place, but markets were willing to look through that. How are you thinking about asset allocation in 2021, where effectively it's the opposite? The economy is really good. Markets are fully priced. And the risk that the Fed makes a mistake is arguably at its highest level in at least the past couple of years. So how do you kind of square that circle from a portfolio perspective? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, your comments, I find a little amusing that I think it was Governor Brainerd who made this point about the markets being stretched and valuations being high. And, you know, I think the Fed loves to point that out without acknowledging their own responsibility for causing these types of asset price bubbles. <laughs> but nevertheless, where are we? We are at a point in the markets where asset prices really across the board are fairly rich. Certainly in any sector where the Fed has a direct ability to influence markets and Obviously, in sectors that are broadly sensitive to declining interest rates, that's going to be a major impact on pricing. So you've got the forward-looking returns for a diversified public market portfolio are pretty dismal right now. You know, you're talking about a 60-40 portfolio returning somewhere between 4 and 4.5% on a forward-looking basis. That's a long-term nominal return clearly well below history, clearly well below what many investors want or need and you know that's going to drive people to look for other solutions. But if you break that down into its components, fixed income right now, interest rates are still incredibly low by historical standards. Obviously, they've normalized a little bit off the lows from mid-2020, but still trading, I think, well below expected inflation across most of the yield curve. And there's clearly room for those rates to rise further in the event that the positive reopening story and the inflation story takes hold. So hard to look at traditional fixed income sectors as being particularly attractive at this point. There's a question as rates move higher, as bond yields move higher, at what point does that start to become a drag on other risk assets, either from a sort of more bottom up perspective that higher interest rates are just sort of bad for economic activity or from more of a portfolio perspective, which is simply that the draw of higher yields will pull capital out of other categories of investment and into fixed income. Right now, the Barclays aggregate or the Bloomberg aggregate is still trading below 2%. I think until you get north of that number, it's probably hard to see a lot of strong pull from fixed income assets relative to other forms of investment. But that's something to be mindful of. There will come a point where fixed income becomes, relatively speaking, more attractive and prices elsewhere will adjust and usually they adjust downwards. Stocks right now are rich. Current PE ratios in the mid-20s are not indicative of strong future returns. And despite the sort of relatively benign economic forecast and the relatively strong corporate profitability that we've seen, a lot of that is priced in, as you said. Asset prices have risen aggressively off the bottom of last year 
And so you have to wonder sort of how much of that is already in the price. And if we do start to see persistent inflation and higher wages, for sure, that could put a crimp in corporate profitability as well. So those things are not conducive to strong portfolio returns going forward. So what do you do in response to this? Well, across the traditional liquid markets, active management is essential. Cap-weighted fixed income is usually a bad idea and passive bonds are going to just expose you to the most indebted, most issued names. There's a lot of opportunity still within certain sectors. I think particularly as you go outside the more traditional spaces into things like preferreds, convertibles, high yield, more into sort of the mezzanine parts of the capital structure. If you're talking about structured credit, there's some very attractive opportunities there to go outside the traditional fixed income space. On the equity side, I think certainly going global, there's a lot more opportunities. I think it's a very persistent argument over time that Europe always looks cheap to the U.S. and somehow it always does. But I think there are real opportunities globally, and I think that's very fertile ground for active management. I think with respect to alternatives, there has been a lot of attention paid to alternatives over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I think what's starting to change is a pivot away from just the high long-term total return sleeves, you know, traditional private equity and real estate to asset classes that offer more moderate returns, but much lower equity correlations and much higher income. You know, you think about core real assets, real estate, infrastructure, transportation. These are asset classes that are driving enormous amounts of investment in the real economy. And they have return and risk characteristics that are fundamentally different than both liquid market beta exposures and some of the more traditional private exposures that investors have relied on for very concentrated high returns. I mentioned some of those things in the middle of the capital structure, hybrid investments in the mezzanine space and high yield. You can also look at derivative implementation, hedged equity programs, where you're giving away a little bit of upside to get some downside protection or increase your income. So there's a lot of interesting places to allocate capital right now. It's a challenge to reach historical return targets. We often use 7% as kind of a guidepost for asset allocation. And in this current environment, that's a real stretch. And it does require investors to think outside the box about their strategic asset allocation, about the nature of which investment categories they view as critical to move capital into, how much liquidity they want to hold in return for excess return. It's a very interesting environment. We've talked a lot about the Fed today and what the Fed's impact will be. I think as this move towards growth and inflation and interest rate normalization kind of ripples through the markets, again, it's going to be less about the classic kind of 60-40 categories and more about true diversification across stocks, bonds, alternatives, core real assets, hybrids and the use of active management everywhere you can to squeeze excess return out of your portfolio. I think maybe I'll conclude it there, but David, anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that's great. I think the question is, do investors take advantage of the full color palette that they have when it comes to building portfolios here going forward? Because as you noted, you know, 60% stocks, 40% bonds is not going to cut it at the end of the day. We're going to need to think outside of perhaps where we've spent a lot of our time thinking over the course of the past couple of decades. So Jared, as always, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on May 10th, 2021.
for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, 
to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.